Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Deal. I'm Danny Brown, your host, and welcome to our next episode with Gary Gold. Gary is a total character, a stand-up comedian, a wise-ass, self-proclaimed. He was the first broker hired at Hilton and Highland. So he is one of the godfathers in the business, such a smart, knowledgeable broker, has seen it all, has done it all, sold the Playboy Mansion, $100 million, the first $100 million sale in LA, sold Chartwell and several other distinguished large parcels in the $100 million range. So school's in session here. You're gonna wanna listen closely. You can find Gary at soldbygold.net or at Sold by Gold on Instagram. On another topic, we're being streamed in 70 countries, so please continue to subscribe on The Deal with Danny Brown at Apple Podcasts and leave us a comment and a five-star review. Uh, We've been hit up multiple times recently for people that want to sponsor the show, and we're not sure if we should allow that to happen or not, but we want to get your feedback. Let us know your thoughts on whether we should now have a sponsor for the show or multiple sponsors. It's not really something I thought about when I got into this, but now I guess we're here and curious what the audience thinks. So anyway, we appreciate the support. Listen closely. Gary Gold School is in session. Gary Gold, welcome to The Deal. Very good to see you on a Friday morning. Hi, Danny. How are you? Good, but that jacket, you look like it could be like, you know, maybe gambling in Vegas or okay. like a racetrack. It's got to look 60s, you know, Ocean's Eleven. I like it. That's it. Ocean's Eleven. Me and Ocean's Eleven. So look, for those of you in the, in the uh, real estate business, especially those that aren't new, if you've been in the business 10, 15, 20 years, you definitely know our guest, legendary agent Gary Gold, sold the Playboy Mansion, Chartwell Estate. Uh, you were the first agent at Hilton and Highland, which is an unbelievable thing. And we can get into sort of the history of that. Uh, but why don't we start with just your story, uh, how you got into real estate, where you grew up and like how you ended up in this real estate business. So I grew up in Encino, California, which when I grew up there, so many, it was almost like New York in the forties. So many incredible people came out of there. It was insane i didn't know that at the time but uh you know because it was just upper middle class but so many people came out of that so my brother was in real estate he was going to ucla and a friend of his steve hartooning was the number one real estate agent at century 21 and probably the youngest real estate agent in the country was maybe like 21. i mean at the time the average age of an agent was dead and my brother quit ucla because this guy was making so much money, he started real estate. And so your brother's he in it. He stood out. Yeah, because he stood out because he was a good looking guy. He drove around in a Corvette, wore tennis shorts, and everyone else was like, you know, like an, an older, retired woman who's doing this instead of going to the bridge club. And he really stood out and he's and he's really eccentric. And when I was 17, I made a mistake. When I tried to paint my car. Jews should not try to paint their car. It's just <laughs> or we're not, we're not We're not built for it. I destroyed the car. It was a 240Z. I had to take it to Earl Shive, get it painted. I had no car. Humiliating. And my brother said, come work for me and I'll buy you a car. The last thing I wanted to do is get into real estate. I wanted to be a writer or a stand-up. I mean, I really wanted to be like a cast member of Saturday Night Live. That's what I wanted to do. I had no idea how to do that or how to get there, but that would be, and I was built for it too, but regardless, it wasn't in the cards. I went to go work for him. And he just said to me, I want to do some marketing. Just do whatever you want to do. Just, I, I want to send out, a, I, want to, I want to promote, I want to promote heavily, do it. I do not have an education at this point, but what I do have is I'm clever and I'm funny and I'm sarcastic. And we come up with this clever, funny, sarcastic, tongue in cheek campaign that lasted for years. That was literally the foundation of like, when you think of a real estate brand agent that didn't exist back then, there was one person before us that that had somewhat of a vibe going named Bob Wall. And this is in the Valley. 
But that was nothing compared to what we just started doing. Billboards and like political postcards that were tongue in cheek. I remember Carter and Reagan were running for president against each other. I think it was Carter and Reagan. And I remember I, I did, yeah, I didn't know shit about politics, but I, again, a smart ass. So I remember I did, we did these uh, character, we did these cartoon postcards. And I had a picture of my brother in front of the White House with uh, Jimmy Carter. And, uh, and they're both in a cartoon. And my brother's saying that, Jimmy Carter saying to my brother, I love the House. It's the Congress I can't stand. And then I had another one with him and Reagan. And Reagan is saying, I'm looking for a four-year lease with, an, with, an, with a four-year extension. And we did all kinds of things like that. And my brother, yeah, and it was, and we really were very successful. And that's how I started in real estate. By the time I was like 21 or something, uh, my brother said, done with residential real estate. It's yours. You take over this division. He started to work with this guy. If you, I don't know, have you, how long have you lived in LA? Okay, Paul Fiegen. My brother was friends with Paul Fiegen, famous, notorious party guy. On he was a he was an attorney, and he threw these crazy parties in Hollywood. Okay, and he drove us. He he drove a Excalibur. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, but he came up with the idea. He was the predecessor to WeWork. He would buy one, two, three. He'd lease one, two, three, four lease uh, floors in a high rise. And he uh, he was an attorney and he turned them into law offices for individuals. So you can look like a big corporation. He had uh, beautiful decor in a law library. You uh, had a, uh, you know, you know, someone answering the phones, had uh, conference rooms and it was all over the country. And my brother leased the majority of those full floor leases to him. So he wasn't interested in residential anymore. And, uh, and he gave it to me again. I had really no interest in doing it, but I, I ran with it and that's how I started. That's how you started. Never looked back. Oh, I looked back for a lot of times. I, for the longest time, really didn't want to do this. I was good. I was successful. Probably would have been even more successful earlier if I really was into it. I wanted to be. I mean, I wanted to be a stand-up comedian. I wanted to be a screenwriter. I wanted to do that. That's what I wanted to do. That's where your passion um, was. And it kept on pulling me in that direction. In fact, at one point, I took a real, real... While being in real estate in my 30s, I would spend evenings writing screenplays, doing open mics, and it absolutely destroyed it destroyed my real estate career. Um, and because that's where I was putting all my energy, all my intelligence, all my thought. Yeah. And I remember asking myself the best question I ever asked myself in my life. Uh, this is a long answer to a question. Yeah, this is, um, keep going. This is great. So I literally destroyed my real estate business. It was just, I went to shit. And I remember saying to myself, what can I do in real estate creatively that turns me on as much as writing? And within literally 48 hours, Rick Hilton calls me and says, I know this guy, a friend of mine, he's, you know, he's got under uh, in escrow this property in Pasadena. He's thinking of building condos. Go see him. And um, I went and saw him and he had this idea for what to do. And I said, I go, this is all wrong. This isn't what you should do. I go, you need to build a Wilshire Boulevard equivalent in Pasadena. There's none of this. There's all these great estates and there's no places for them to go next. And I helped him design this development called Granite Park. And I literally, they hired me. I got paid because it wasn't going to be built for years. I got paid a decent amount of money. And I was, I helped design and create that thing. Also at the same time, 
the internet became much more prevalent when it came to marketing real estate. Uh, and I, I remember, uh, I, I thought Zillow at the time back then for real estate in Beverly Hills, it was like an embarrassment. It'd be like putting your face on a bus bench in Beverly Hills, just not what you would do. I, but someone told me how great it was. And I, I thought it was ridiculous, but I had budgets with other people's money. I said, let's give it a shot. And I, so I started advertising with Zillow. And back then you'd pay for a banner up here and you paid big money and you would get for free, whatever zip code you're in, you'd get your face up there for free. I didn't even know it. This is, that became their major business. That was a giveaway at the time. All of a sudden, I start getting calls from principals on houses in that area. I didn't understand. It was ridiculous. And when I had this one development in Beverly Hills. I was the only, literally one of the few agents in Beverly Hills that actually registered for Zillow. At the time, if you didn't register for Zillow, your name didn't end up on your listings. And I was getting all these calls. So uh, in 2008, the mark, you know, that whole thing fell apart. And I know one of, and that was probably one of the, in 2008, I, I had so many developments under contract. I mean, all over the world and it all came crashing down. But the one thing when I went back into resale full time, I kept the zip codes in Beverly Hills and the post office. And that was one more time I had to reinvent myself. And, um, so that's, a, that's how I got into real estate. And that takes you up to about 14 years ago. Rewind because there's some, uh, years we glossed over that I think are, are really important to the history of residential real Please. estate. So, you had mentioned to me, and I knew you started at Hilton and Highland in the early days, one of the first, but I think you actually were the first agent at Hilton and Highland. Well, I, I started in 1980. When I turned 30 and I was in the Valley, I decided, and I had my own company. I said, if I'm going to do this, I want to go big. And I had sold a house with Jeff. It was Howard Hughes's honeymoon house up on Antello. And he had been hounding me for like, like for like six years. Every time he would, always, I'd be his valley guy. He'd call me if he had any questions. And then he, every time he goes, you got to come to Beverly Hills. What are you doing in the minor leagues? Just kept on pushing me like often, literally for six years. And then when I turned, you know, I, I, I hit an age and he was like 30 or something. I said, if I got to do this. I guess I'm in real estate. I'm going to go big and I'm going to go and do it in Beverly Hills. And I went and interviewed with everybody and everyone questioned how I could take the Valley business and bring it over here. And I walk in and see Jeff, he goes, you're going to, be a, he goes, you're going to make millions. He was the only one who really was positive. And I went to go work at Alvarez Highland and Young. That was the predecessor to Hilton and Highland, which was, not, it didn't quite reach the level of Hilton, but it was at the time, it literally was the same thing. It was the premier boutique high-end brokerage. He had done this before with other partners. All right. So then he launched Hilton Highland. So uh, I'm going to put a pin in that because I, before we end, I definitely want to kind of pay a little respects and kind of talk about the legacy of Jeff Highland from your perspective. But before we do that, you went there to go big. You went to Beverly Hills to go big. And, and boy, did you go big. Uh, why don't we talk a little bit about a little piece of property known as the Playboy Mansion in the Homeby Hills. That was record sale, the first $100 million sale. Uh, you sold it. I, there's so many stories running you know, throughout the industry about how hard that was to sell and the craziness that went on. Uh, from what you can share, why don't you talk, us about, talk to us about how the, how the heck do you even get the listing or in the, get in the door for the Playboy Mansion? And then the next question was, tell us how it went and what it was like to sell it. Okay, I will. Okay, so I ended up getting, I always, I, I jokingly but partially true say, the Playboy Mansion was a Zillow lead. <laughs> <laughs> and indirectly. So when I got involved in Zillow, I got involved in Zillow. 
And I was doing things on Zillow and tweaking out their programs where I started getting texts and emails from Spencer Raskoff, who ran it, and Greg Schwartz, CFO. It's like, and I had met them once. Spencer was on my podcast a couple of weeks ago. He's he was just on. So we start. So he started texting me. Wow, what a great thing you're doing now. That's amazing. And I was the I was like like the I think one of the first luxury people, definitely in Beverly Hills, that was using it. So I became their poster child, and we had this great relationship, and such a good relationship that um, at one point. Uh, they were doing this uh, promotion with the Guilt Group. You know, they are. Yeah, the yeah. Guilt. Yes, the luxury okay. Guilt Group. Yeah. And with uh, the Guilt Group and uh, Miley, what's, what's his name? He used to be married to uh, Demi Moore. Not Bruce. He's married to Milo Kunis. Oh, uh, what's his name? Yes, Ashton. 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 So Ashton Kutcher. The Guild Group and Zillow were going to do this promotion where Ashton had built this spec home with his dad. It was super cool. I think he may have lived there at some point, but he did this in the Hollywood Hills. And Greg said to me, would you be interested in listing this house and donating half your commission to a charity that Ashton believes in? And we're doing this. It's going to be a fundraiser. It's going to be a design home and we're going to sell it. And will you do this? And I, and I said, yeah, it was, I remember was this of like, it was near Laurel Canyon up in the Hills. And I said, I said, yes. And, uh, and then I went to this, the, this, uh, and then we did this, uh, as I said, it became a design home where every, a decorator did a different room. And one of the decorators was married to an architect who came up to the event and we started talking. His name was William Hefner. <laughs> yeah. At the time, he was successful, but he wasn't who William Hefner. And we just started chatting and took and and I had said to him, I go, I got a client for you. And I got him a nine hundred thousand dollar remodel. And at the time that was a good good thing for him. And I also we became friends and I but I also said to him that day, Do you ever have a client that like thinks they're overbuilding, doesn't know if this is the right kind of home for this area? Any real estate question, I'm not looking to sell anybody, but I'm, you know, I've been sober 38 years and I like to be of service. I go, I'm happy to go talk to anybody and, you know, put my two cents in. So years, years later, he called me and said, I have a client who thinks he might be overbuilding. And you, you go take a look at the house and give me your opinion. So I went over to the house and the guy happened to be there and we started talking, ended up becoming a client of mine sold a couple houses with him and he ended up also being the managing partner that uh of the private equity firm that owns playboy oh god there you go so but we we had this long relationship and i remember at one point he had just mentioned to me what do you think the playboy mansion is worth and i and i remember i went huh i, I didn't know it was like real estate that you could sell i thought it was like some kind of land i didn't I just didn't know. It just didn't seem like a house that was, was sellable. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't, I don't remember what I had said to him, but he started over maybe a period of a couple of years asking me some questions. What do you think of auction? How's the market? This or that. And at this time, I mean, I was successful, but I wasn't the final table, like one of the five, four people you would hire to sell that kind of house. No one's ever sold that kind of house, but I certainly, even though I'd had some massive sales, I just wasn't on that final table. And then at one point, I remember he, he said, I think we're going to sell it. And, and uh, his wife was there and says, well, you're going to give it to Gary, aren't you? And he goes, we got a board of directors. I'm not giving anything to anybody, but right, give you a shot. And I just remember in my head, I went, I mean, as I said, I first thought, can you even sell such a thing? And then I go, I, I go, I think I might have a shot at getting this. How will I? And then I, but I, I go, how could I possibly get that? When I went to that point, how could I possibly pull that off? 
And then I went home and I told you I'm a creative guy. And I started asking myself that question. I'm a big Tony Robbins fan. How do I sell myself to be the best person for that thing? And I put a lot of work into it. And at one point, I think I said to him, let me send you a proposal. Because he nothing was happening. He just would talk about it. But it was almost like, not like he was taking me seriously. And he says, okay. And I remember, so at one point I remember, so I kept on thinking about it. And I went from, I think I could do this to, I can fucking do this. And then to, I am getting this listing no matter what. So and I just set in my head, I am going to get this listing and I am going to sell it no matter what. Now, uh, and then as a result, I started keep on asking myself the question, how do I secure that position? So first of all, I said, should I bring the head of Christie's? Because I was a member of Christie's at the time. Should I bring the head of the Western United States? They're the, the head of there with me. He goes, yeah, have him come here and meet with you as well at the meeting. He goes, that's not a bad idea. He goes, yeah, I think that that's a good idea. Because he's he would give it to me. He trusts me, but he's got a whole board of directors. And then, I rem- and then I'm going, okay. I go, well, what if I brought in some muscle to just just to hedge my bet, bring in a, another big agent at HH? Would that be a good idea? He goes, anything you can do to sell this? Uh, another thing I remember at the time, this is before there was a compass in LA. I think it was only in New York and Washington, maybe at the time, DC. No, it was New York and Washington, DC. And uh, he was looking to open up LA and they were looking for a, 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 a person of note to be the person that they could launch it with. And I met with Robert Refkin a few times. Uh I told you earlier I was a smart ass. I remember telling Robert we we went out three times and we were at the last dinner and I said to him, I go, I think I have the answer because I said he needed an international kind of marketing thing to check the box. You know, I said there's previews, there's Christie's, there's Sotheby's, you need that to be able or he just to say it and he agreed. And I said, I've got the answer for you. He goes, What? I go, you should make Compass the official broker to the International House of Pancakes. <laughs> he loved it. So, so he said, I wouldn't tell him what it was, even though he guessed what the listing was. I remember he said, he goes, I'll give you a hundred grand in marketing. And you can tell them that because I, I was thinking of going to work there. Yeah. And I had mentioned, I said, what do you think? I talked, I told him about the company. If I, if I came there, how would that affect getting the listing? And he said, that's a bad idea. He goes, we're talking about people of a board of directors. They need the checkbox. They need to prove it. An unknown entity is not going to help you when you're at this. We need someone established. So that I thought that that was probably the most important thing was being, was getting that listing more than making a possible change. Uh, so um, went after the listing and brought another big agent in, had a listing appointment, went really well. We had beat out, I brought in Drew. You brought in uh, Drew, okay, from Hilden High, the yeah, same he's company. He's got a photographic memory. Yeah, encyclopedic memory of high end. We've, yeah. we've done a bunch of deals together. I can't say enough about the guy. Yeah. He's a great, great, great agent. So uh, we killed it. Um, and then, He's, he And after the meeting, he said, I think you got this. This is it. I think you got the listing. And then he called me. He goes, we got one more person to interview. And they go interview this other agent. And he called me. He goes, Gary, I'm sorry to tell you, we met with this other agent. And unanimously, we all were blown away. Thought, yeah. this, this is the agent we need to go with. He has got it together. And remember, I told you, I said, I'm getting this listing no yeah. matter what. That's my mindset. It's not, oh, fuck, I lost. That wasn't in my vocabulary. I was like, I'm getting this listing. I have a puppy. My puppy is, and we have this toy where you put a, a bone in there and he's got to like spend two hours getting it out. He's getting it out. That's who I am. 
I'm my puppy. So I said maybe one of the most intelligent things I've ever said in my career. And I said to him, I said, I completely get it. I go, there is nobody better. I go, he's a great agent and there's nobody better at presenting what they can do and marketing than that agent. No one. I said, then that company, I said that company instead of agent. I go, I go, where we really shine at Hilton Highland is selling the properties. I said, give me 20 minutes. I'm going to send you a spreadsheet with two columns. One with all the homes over $20 million that Hilton Highland has sold in the last couple of years. And two with a column of everything they've sold. I'm not taking anything against the other brokers. Great. But it's like 5% of what we do because we really had dominated that. And I sent him that 20 minutes later, about 20 minutes after that, he called me and said, the board decided to co-list with you too. <laughs> it's very smart. So, so many, so many pieces of wisdom. So I'm guessing that's, that's Mauricio, Mauricio and the agency who do an unbelievable job of branding and presentations and sexiness. And, and at the time, 10 years ago, that was, they were even more ahead of the curve you know, back then, no one was doing what they were doing. I think they're pretty happening right now. Yeah, they still but are. They were they're getting it. But at the time, see, real interesting. Mauricio Gary Gold, in, at that time, his his stats blew me away. If I said me compared to him, yeah, I would have I would have just been dead in the water. I didn't say that. I didn't have that to say. I said the agency versus Hilton and Highland. I have a big when I when I teach people Love it. one of my big credos is sell what you have. Don't yeah. bullshit. Sell what you have. At the time, I had a massive company. I had a guy that knew, knew like and trusted me, and I had a massive company that was undisputably the heavyweight champion of the world, and that's what I sold. I didn't sell at the moment myself, and I landed the sale, and I ended up. Uh, in that particular case, hey, listen, Drew, Gary, Mauricio, all very competent agents. But I was like the, I was like the second baseman, and there's like the center fielder and the first baseman. It's a pop up flyer, fly, and he says, "I got this," and like kicks people on the ground. Yeah, I, I got this ball. I'm yeah. Gonna, so I just took that and after, I took that and ran with it because it was a. Second was, how do you sell that? It was a very complicated deal. And I literally went into missed, I went into missile lock and it took several months to get that deal done because it was so complex. You know, he got to live there until he died. Right. So someone and, had to and, be okay uh, with that. Open-ended, not having access to the house. And, and I don't believe his birth certificate had an expiration date. So that was an unknown thing. And the house was falling apart at the time. So... He wanted to make sure it wasn't falling apart anymore. It cost a lot of money to run. It was that that's a very complex scenario. But uh, we worked it out. We had someone who really wanted to buy it, someone really wanted to sell it, no one that was willing to compromise. But uh, and I had to get everyone to the table, which you know I also had. Uh, there's an attorney that worked on that who seems to work on every big deal, Loretta Thompson. Yeah. And between the two of us, we just worked on that like to such a degree and got it done. Um, Jade had the buyer, you know, we actually we actually sealed the deal. There was a couple brothers and a dad, but we yeah. sealed the deal on like midnight on the 4th of July. That's ah, the ah. type of that's how we had to work. How long was the intense negotiating from like, okay, we're about to submit to sealing the deal? Was it like a, once that part started, it was a normal or was it extended because there's so many people and so many advisors? First call, Drew and I, we also talked to, Drew and I said, we knew who the buyer was. That's the buyer. We knew who the buyer was. We got an offer from him. We never put it in the MLS. We had an offer from him literally within days of having it listed. We knew who the buyer was. 
he brought us an offer way, 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 way lower. Than, yeah, of course. You know, we were going to sell it out. And getting him to get him back to the table, we had to get other offers, which we did, and then got him back on the table shortly thereafter. And but it just took three, two, it was like two or three months to get everything worked out because we came to a price and then we had to negotiate one oh, the thing after another. And it was the most complicated deal I've ever done. Uh, fortunately, I started at a time when interest rates were 20 plus 5%. And uh, I learned how to do really complicated deals from the get go. And so it's, uh, you know, I'm really good at doing, learning how to do things or figuring how to do things that I don't know how to do. So let me unpack. There's so much stuff going on there, but what a testament to, first of all, your mindset and tenacity to even think I'm, I'm going to make this happen. Nobody in the world has sold anything like that. But then for you to just say, I'm going to make it happen and sat down and sounds like you just sat down and started brainstorming. Maybe that wasn't the process, but we're like, there's no way I'm not going to get this done. But talk to me about what that actually looked like when you started thinking about. No, no matter what happened, and I don't know where it came from, but I, when I latched onto it, I knew this was the right way to be. I did not get distracted by anything other than I saw this buyer who really wanted to buy it, saw a seller that really wanted, that was going to sell it. And no matter what anyone said, no matter what anyone did, no matter what anyone threatened, no matter any cancellations, any, anything, I literally ignored all of it. And we're screaming, whatever it was. And I just said, this deal is going to happen. Let everyone do whatever they want to do consulting wise. I am just going to keep on moving it forward because I know it. These people are going to come together and I'm not going to get caught up in this other stuff. <clears throat> the nuances of this drama. Uh, and that's what I did. And uh, I never had such freaking clarity in my, my mind because it just, it, it, it was it, it was uh, a lot of lot, lot of things going on, but I just didn't let any of it distract me. I said, I still know this guy wants to buy and this guy wants to sell. So just, just keep on going there. Yeah, well, what a great life That's lesson. A great life lesson. Certainly an incredible lesson uh, as agents always dealing with these sort of things, just like laser focus yeah. and blocking out the noise and emotions and not letting and go. I also knew that if I sold that property it would be equivalent to getting a Super Bowl ring. Absolutely. <laughs> and so, and I've gotten a few. And uh, I knew that this is like a career changer. Um, of course, and it was. As long as you leverage it. There are people, there's people who have sold some big houses. There was a guy, I don't even remember his name, that sold Fleur de Lis for like 90 million. Never heard much from him again. There was some girl who sold a house on Hillcrest, the first home to ever sell for 70 on Hillcrest in Beverly Hills. She she could have just taken that and ran with it, never heard from again. So if you I believe that every agent will have more than one major opportunity in their marketplace to sell something or do something that will be a game changer, that'll be a Super Bowl ring. That opportunity will come. A, you need to get that, you need to seize that opportunity and take it down. And B, once you do it, you need to leverage the fuck out of it. And that's how people get successful. It, but you, it's a two-step process. There are some people, there are some people that are just really on, that are really low on the radar, but still they leverage everything they do. It's so key that that's how you build your business. Absolutely. That is such a key. I mean, you got to do the hard work to put yourself to get the opportunity, but then you got to hold on and leverage the opportunity. So you leverage it. You got Chartwell Estate and a bunch of other stuff. Hurst Estate, right. I've done this a couple of times. I've had this, uh, I've had a couple of those opportunities. Big, big ones. That I've leveraged. Uh, my first was when I moved to Beverly Hills. Uh, I When I moved to Beverly Hills, I didn't know Benedict Canyon from Coldwater Canyon. 
I remember my first week there, I knew real estate. I was already in real estate. And I remember saying to myself, I need to know all the inventory. And I, and I remember planning on seeing 20 houses at Caravan the first week I was there. And the first half, a lot of houses, free GPS. I went into Bel Air to see my first house. And about two hours later, I said, I'm not going to find this fucking house. I'm out of here. (laughs) Just driving around the hills. (laughs) So it took me a while. It's easy to get lost. West gate, east gate. You get lost in Bel Air if you don't know where you're going. But I've always remained humble. And even though I was a successful agent, I, I go to dinner and I run into a client from that I knew from the Valley at the Palm restaurant. And this is, I'm just fairly within a couple of months new in real estate in the West side. And he sit, he's a manager in the music business. And he goes, he says to me, this is our new artist here. And uh, she's looking for a $2,000 apartment in Studio City. Will you help her? I said, yes, no problem. By the time I had to keep on calling her to get her on the phone, it was also just difficult to get on the phone. By the time I got a hold of her, she had some success and I sold her an $800,000 house uh, of my own. Um, and by the time she moved into that house, she was like the biggest star in the world. And I sold her a $3 million house. But before I sold her this $3 million house, it was Paula Abdul. I took Paula and there was all these new homes being built in the post office in Bel Air, Mulholland. They were mostly at the time, like a 6,000 foot house, 7,000 foot house would be worth 3 million bucks. And there must've been 30, 40 of them being built, maybe more. I went and tracked down all these ones under construction. At the time, it wasn't like these big conglomerates were building it. There was Joe, the developer. There was this, there was all these. And I went up and introduced myself and I said, I'd like to show your home. I got a client, Paula Abdul. And I proceeded to show virtually every one of these houses while under construction to Paula. And I looked like, like I was the shit. And I ended up getting a ton of listings. And that's how I got my foothold in the valley. That was the that was my first big break in the West Side. So talk about leveraging. It was my second one. I mean, thinking strategic. I keep hearing you say things. I'm like, God, that's so smart and strategic. And yet it's like, why aren't people doing this all the time? But you certainly uh, have that, uh, that chromosome in, in your brain that's like strategic. What can I do to maximize this moment? Uh, that's fantastic, man. I love it. I'm actually, at the, at the time, I'm not sure what I was thinking. <laughs> I did want to sell her a house. And I think the market was tight. And I think it just, I think I figured it out while I was doing it. I go, oh, wow, this is going to be a windfall. But at first, I just was trying to find her house. Yeah. So let's talk about now. It's 2023. The market's shifted. It's hard to pinpoint. Uh, at the high end, where we're working mostly, it's still been pretty pretty active. There's no no major differences. But talk to me kind of what you're seeing in the market now uh, from just a market perspective. Also, from the culture of uh, the agent culture. Uh, and then let's sort of tie that into uh, the good old days, the Jeff Hyland legacy, what he was about versus kind of what the business is and has become. It's a lot of questions at once, well, but you could take it any direction you want. Okay. Well, kind of like the Playboy Mansion, um, when I, all these people were just, looked like it was gonna fall apart every hour. I did not focus on that. I focused on, I got that to sell. And I still am the same. I think people sitting there talking about the market, in a way it's kind of nonsensical, but I very, very, very well aware of it. Uh, first of all, it's, it's confusing uh, for multiple reasons. Uh, there, this is a true story. Morgan Stanley, about three weeks ago, came out with an article and about, there's like three or four cities they think are going to just take a huge hit. I saw that. And to 2008 proportions. And if you looked at the headline, it definitely said the, a crash. Yeah. Yeah. 
When you read further down, they said there are other areas that are doing well, but the headline and the, what they put out there was very negative. 10 days later, Morgan Stanley comes out with an article saying, we have we, the the worst is beyond us. <laughs> we, it's all blue skies. This is ten days apart. Now, a couple things I think, couple things I figured out. Morgan Stanley is not. It's not like they called Morgan. Hey, Morgan, what do you think? Yeah. People think that, but you could have had one analyst at Morgan Stanley here and one person here at Morgan Stanley there, and they also have a lot of skin in the game, and I think they could say things for their own purposes. Regardless, it confuses the shit out of people, but it's really interesting. All the things that people are suggesting, when you ask people, well, God, I have a lot of clients, and there's definitely fear. The market sucks. It's going to crash. I'm going to hold off. And here are the things they say. They go, last year, prices were off 40%. No, sales were off 40%. So, and I'm like, so you mean there's this going to be this huge pent up demand now? Is that what you're trying to say? The 40% of people that didn't buy, there's got to be a good percentage that they're going to buy this year. Is that what you're trying to tell me? And then they go, what about inflation? I go, and I go, inflation is killing us. If, if it wasn't for inflation, real estate would not be a good investment. Real estate loves inflation. They're not printing any more houses. They're printing more money. So inflation is also something that would be good. Then they also push, well, interest rates keep on going up. Now they've been fluctuating, but when that was originally said, but mortgage rates haven't been going up the same way. And they're, I think they have creeped up a little bit. A little bit. Or so. Yeah. A little bit, but. But not but to seven yet. You know, we're still below seven. Right. And our so, you know, interest rates, I mean, Interest rates historically have not had this massive impact on luxury real estate. They just haven't. It's and and historically, interest rates aren't particularly high right now. It's just compared to free money era 20, 20 and twenty one and and half of twenty two that was just so hot. So I don't think any of those facts. So a hundred economists were asked, real estate economists not regular economists, people that focus on real estate. Where's the market going to be in three years? Of the 100, the low average was, it's going to be up 8.7% in three years. That's 3% a year, modest. The high average was 46%. They thought it was going to be an average of 12% a year. And, the, and, and if you take the whole thing and put it right in the average, it was 24%, about 8% a year. I don't see any reason other than shit's unpredictable, unless there is some type of real cataclysmic Armageddon event. Why real estate? This year could be rough. It's possible. I don't know. It's unpredictable. But a few years from now, why real estate would be going up in value with inflation and, and a housing shortage. Why would real estate go up? Now, some area could get killed. That could happen. Something could fall out of favor. That's for sure. But I think the market, there is no, people go, oh, it's a cycle or due. We're not, things don't just change because we're due. They change because certain things occur. And they usually are, when the market is so hot, people build like crazy, and then you end up in too much inventory. And that's what causes it. In this particular case, we still have this housing shortage. So as long as we have a housing shortage, as long as we have inflation, as long you know, I can't and as I can't see why real estate wouldn't be a, a good investment. The other thing people talk about, don't think about, is people don't buy a house today. We don't day trade houses. We're not buying it today to sell it Friday. We're not flipping every day. We're buying it today to to sell it a long time down the road. If anyone who wants to buy and they think they need to sell in a year, maybe don't buy. Maybe right, that's not a good idea. But short of that. You look at a graph the last 50 years of real estate. Yeah, it's going one way. Without the little nuances, it's just one way. It has gone up straight for 50, 60 years with a couple little blips, and then it just went back right on track. So I think real estate remains 
for a multitude of reasons, great investment. It's not a good idea to make a stupid decision, whether it's a good market or a bad market. Um, I get, I'm very educated. I know what's happening on a real level. I talk facts. I don't talk bullshit. Most people are sitting there and they're talking about fear. For all you agents out there, which is most of them there, you need to know what's happening in the market, not what people are feeling. That's a, that's that might be a data point. This is how people are feeling, but this is what is happening. I was at a listing appointment yesterday, and I was telling her because you know she's has the, all these things that she hears. I said it doesn't matter what really even agents, for most part, are sitting there and chatting about. It doesn't matter what people who aren't buying and selling houses are thinking or people on the news are thinking in any certain market, there's people that are selling their home and buying their home. And those people know the market. If you need to buy a home and you hear the market's horrible and there's very little inventory and it's tight and you, you write on offers, it's multiple offers. That's all that matters or not, or there's a ton of inventory. Yeah, and I, I agree wholeheartedly. And what's happening in the trenches is uh, often, if not always, very different than the sentiment. And even within our peer group, because as you know, you know, 99% of the agent peer group really isn't in the trenches like we are every day and studying it. Right. They're, they're in the periphery and don't know much more than the clients. Sometimes they'll know less than the clients. So that kind of gets me to my next topic. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. If you ask somebody in Malibu, an agent or a buyer or a seller in Malibu about, God, what about this market? It's, they will go, what are you talking about? Because that's very, very, very clear there. Um, also, so just, just as a, a point, you know, people think that the market's really gotten bad. Did you know last year, and I, I really tracked the ultra expensive houses, north of 30 million, Last year was the best year in the history of the universe by like 20%. So doesn't sound so horrible to me. Yeah, and we'll see six months, we'll count 2023. But yes, you're right. And I think to, well, it, but to, if you're comparing to the greatest years in the history of real estate, of course, we're going to be down. Like you can't have the greatest year in real estate year after year after year. So, of course, that's also part of the headlines and, and stats. That's also, that, that actually is a good thing. We were doing something unsustainable. I suggest anyone in real estate should subscribe to Keeping Current Matters. These guys track the economy. They know what's going on. And you can... David, you're right. And as you listen to these guys and you have that information, you're going to have an intelligent conversation with your client. Us as a whole, us, yes, us as a collective do not be, need to be running around speaking nonsense, using it to try to get prices down if it's not justified. You know, sometimes, often it is justified. Now, the one thing that is true is there's a lot of overpriced listings, but they were never worth what they're asking. It's not that the market's changed, it's that it was just not a realistic price in the first place. Yeah, aspirational price, even in the best, best market of all time, and now it's still sitting at the same price, and yes, for sure, you're not selling. So let's, let's uh, focus now towards the end here on the legacy of Jeff Hyland. Uh, Jeff Hyland really was the, you know, Mount Rushmore of high-end luxury real estate in LA and Beverly Hills and high end for, for many decades. He just passed away, rest in peace, but a great guy. Uh, I knew him well, not as well as you. You, you, you know, had your career with him and were partners with him for many years. But with the way the culture is going now in our business, and I don't want to down uh, talk negative about that, but I really want to talk about like, what was Jeff all about? What was the culture that he was about and he was preaching and, you know, walking the walk, talking the talk, uh, can we talk a little bit about that? He was just he was just like my puppy. He it was very it was his singular purpose. He was he when he started Alvers Highland and Young, and then when he started Hilton Highland, he had a mission. He wanted to do one thing, he wanted to have one office in Beverly Hills, sell the best houses and have the best agents. That's it. 
He was unwilling to waver in any way, shape, or form. He wasn't going to franchise his name. He wasn't going to move to, I asked him a hundred times, we should move, open an office in the Valley. He wasn't going to do it for better or for worse. This is what he wanted to do. And everything he did was singularly focused on doing that, having the most prestigious and selling the best houses and attracting the best agents. But it's it, when I started to work there, I mean, the first person we brought on was Steve Levine. Steve, another character, and, great, funny guy. Yes. Another comedian. Yes. And then we, Mauricio, who was related to Rick, he came on early on. Um, it just took a long time. It's not like it was just like everyone wanted to be there and they were coming in droves. We were this little boutique. And it. what happened is he remained so steadfast and so consistent that every time a company had a shakeup, the company got sold, something changed in a company, we would get two or three or four of their best agents. They'd say, I'm going to come over here. And that just happened for 27 years. So one day we woke up and it's like, because I remember Rick and Jessica, we need to recruit people. We need to recruit people. And at some point it was that we never even considered recruiting people. It just became the opposite. But it was because uh, he wasn't actually particularly, no, no one was particularly great at recruiting people. It wasn't some formula thing. It was more of a, maybe a, it was just by attraction and by consistency because he just never, ever, ever, ever changed. Um, so that is his secret. He is not, he's a great guy. He was not some great leader. He wasn't a Gary Keller. He wasn't this like, I mean, he, that's not the way he was. He was just consistently at a single lure focus to sell the best houses. Uh, and he managed to be able to, he managed to be able to manage 150 prima donnas and had a very strange management style. You'd walk in the office and you'd ask him a question. And even if it was like one that like kind of an intense thing, he would say a couple of things and shake his head and he would kind of send you off and you'd be saying to yourself, what just happened? <laughs> But you somehow kind of knew what to do and like got an answer, but it didn't come out of his mouth. It was uh, somewhat mystical, but everyone talks about it. He was just, it was just an interesting way. So that's what he was. He just remained being consistently himself with one singular person, purpose, not interested in changing it. And I guess at the end, it might've been to a fault because if he really had planned for the future, which I, I remember talking to him about, I remember two years before he died, we were in Las Vegas at a conference and no one would ask him this. He wasn't that well, but uh, I will. I, I can ask tough questions. I said, where do you see Hilton and Highland when you're no longer in the picture? I just said that to him. And he goes, oh, I, he goes, I think the, the agents will take it over. There was no thought behind that. It was just, it was kind of a feeling, but I said, well, you need to, you should structure something. Cause I go, this company could be here. You could be like Brown Harris Stevens in New York. This company could be here in a hundred years, Hilton and Highland. It really could be, it's, you've got that type of legacy and that kind of, you know, power, but it's not going to happen by itself. And it's never happened. So, uh, so that's where that singleness of purpose I guess can be <laughs> all encompassing. You never took the time yeah. to put in a succession plan and you know, here you are now. So let's get into some fun stuff. Uh, well, before we get into some fun stuff, let's get words of what words of advice for other brokers that are, whether they're new or whether they're struggling or they're challenged, what is the Gary gold, some words of wisdom of, Hey, what they should be focusing on, what they could be doing to building their business. Cause a lot of people got away from that. Those last five or 10 years, you didn't have to do the fundamentals and people got away with it. It's not, not so much anymore, but what would be some of your. Well, first of all, right now, in, in a way it can be an easier time right now, 
things have slowed down. You're not playing in a game where everything is so fast, happening so fast, where really slick agents are just going to run all over you. A little bit more time. But whatever you do is you need to be strategic. There's 2.3 million real estate agents. Your license is fucking worthless. Unless you actually are bringing something to the table, unless you have it, 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 no one needs another agent. Now, what people do need is that you need, and, and you need to be strategic. Let's just say you, some people go, I want to sell luxury homes. I, I, I go to conferences and lots of people come up and talk to me. And I remember, I go, where do you live? And he goes, uh, I don't remember. It was in some area. I go, what's the average price there? He goes, well, about 175. I go, it doesn't sound like a good place to get into the luxury homes. Or I want to sell mid-century homes and you live in Calabasas. Bad plan. If you want to, you should look at specialists make more than generalists. You should look at what do I want to do? Now, at the beginning, just to get your, you just try to figure it out, but figure out, okay, I want to sell this type of house or this type of area or this type of person. And then once you do that and have that, because when you really know what the fuck you're talking about, it's a different conversation. People get it. You're just an agent and just like, I want to be, pick me, pick me, different story. Then actually do a real assessment of the market that you're going after, whether it's people, location, or price range. How many houses sell a year? Who, it, who would you be competing with? What's the totable, total commission possible? Is there any opportunities like some people aging out of that area so is there a person you maybe could latch onto and take over their business and buy it from them or you know give them a piece of it or some type of arrangement um know what you're doing don't just blindly go i want to sell expensive houses the first when people uh, the big question people ask me it must have been three thousand times how do i how do i get into luxury real estate well the first question you have to ask yourself, is that a good idea? If you're luxury real estate's awesome, if shit's selling, if you're in an area and nothing has, is selling in that price point, that's a tough go. That gets unsexy real quick. So really know what you're after, know what the market is, and just run your business like a business. Because once you get into it, that's not when you want to figure it out. That is uh, soul crushing. Priceless. That's priceless advice. I love it. All right. Talk to us. What's on the Gary Gold uh, playlist? If we uh, get into your AirPods, what music are you listening to? What are some songs, groups, things you love? My favorite artist right now in the last year, probably, and I listen to a lot of music. I grew up in the music business. I listen to, and my favorite artist, I discovered him maybe a year and a half ago on Spotify. And I went, who is this? And I figured out he's someone that a lot of big musicians, you know, kneel to his altar. His name's Jason Isbell and 400 Unit. He is so good and he has got a body of work. You can listen to him all day. Uh, love him. And discovered somebody a month ago that I am obsessed with. And you could look her up on YouTube too, because she is, imagine someone who looks like Jane Mansfield. And plays like Stevie Ray Vaughan. <laughs> and it's a great singer. Her name is Samantha Fish. I'm going to look. She, <laughs> now, she, she's played with every, you know, almost like all these great guitars. Again, in the, in the world, she's no mystery. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. Uh, she, is, she, plays this, she, she plays this guitar, one of them made out of a cigar box. And she is one of the fiercest guitar players I've ever heard in my life. I saw her playing with Buddy Guy, who was just like, what? And I saw her playing with, like, there's, there's a video on uh, YouTube with her and Gary Clark Jr. And she literally had an out-of-body experience at this one, this, when he, she brought him up. So those two I love. But, I mean, it's wide. My favorite movie of all time yeah, I was going to ask shows. Movie. hundred times I've watched this movie. It was one of the reasons I wrote screenplays. Uh, defending Your Life. What? I don't know uh, that. 
It's with Albert. It's an Albert Brooks movie. He wrote and directed it. And Meryl Streep. It's about this guy. He dies and comes to, and he's in this place called Judgment City, where you have to defend your life and to see if you've overcome fear in your life. It's, it's a comedy. And if you overcome the fear, you move to the next place in the universe. If not, you go back and do it all over again. One of the most brilliant movies ever. And then the other movie I've watched a bunch, not that much, but for the opposite reason is The Wolf of Wall Street. Just to remember what, when you take drugs and, and, and motivation, how crazy it could be. I've been sober 30, going on 38 years. And uh, so I, I, that's an entertaining, great movie. But it also just just see how freaking self-destructive people can be when they're actually trying to be successful. And that can happen. And it's not pretty. Not pretty. Oof, it is not. So any books that were inspirational to you or books that you would recommend for people? It doesn't have to be business books. Could be any kind. I listen to a ton of podcasts. I love getting information. Like mostly a lot of these people have written books, but it's like hear them talk for an hour or two. And I do a ton, ton of that. And I love it. The first book I ever read, this might give you an idea of my psyche. I was like nine years old and I walked into a bookstore and I went right past the comic books, right to the self-help section. I was like nine or 10 years old. And I bought this book and there was this book that just, just I just saw the title. It's just called The Magic of Believing by a guy named Claude M. Bristol. I've read it a bunch of times. It still holds up. One of the great books of all times, Think and Grow Rich, one of the great books of all times. Uh, I have absorbed Tony Robbins a multitude of times. His 30-day program, I've done three or four times. And uh, the, I mean, at the time they were like, you know, CDs or something. Not necessarily, I've been to one of his events, but I've been there. And I also, I also coach, you know, I'm part of the Tom Ferry organization. So I've been that for about 10 years. I thought I knew everything and I was wrong. I mean, you'd be a fantastic coach just, just from this podcast. There's so much knowledge you're dropping. Well, anything you want to leave us with? Any last words, any parting ways uh, that you've been so generous with your wisdom and knowledge? And I know next time we could just do an hour stand-up comedy with Gary Gold live from the comedy store. I will tell you, and I'm actually going to be starting a course in the beginning of May called Compete and Beat the Best. And what it's about, and I was that guy with the Playboy Mansion. How do I go after, because when I go on listing appointments, I go, I am sitting there competing with like maybe five of the top agents in the country. These people are, and I go, how do I beat them? How do I win against these people? And I figured it out. I'd like to know, I'm in. I'm in. Yeah. Sign me up. So what I did is I have come up because you know what? As these people have a huge advantage, we've built these huge brands, uh, and I guess and, and of course after this will become become compete, beat, and become the best. But there's also vulnerabilities, and anybody, anybody can beat me. You probably won't, but anyone can beat me or beat Drew or beat Kurt Rappaport if they outperform them. In a in a situation in like a listing appointment, if they convince the client that they're the best agent for them, and I don't, you win, and it happens all the time. So there is a way to do it because people aren't necessarily looking. I want the top agent in the world. They want the best agent for them, and if you can convince that, and you and and there's a you know everyone. Everyone has their strengths, especially if they've got their head on straight. And there's and everyone and there's a bunch of people, you know, not everyone has the same business manager in Hollywood. Everyone goes, I've got my guy, I got this guy. So I would just say that if you're trying to get into luxury, trying to or just break into the market where you've got these people or these massive agents, like how do I ever compete with them? You can. They did at one point, they were you, 
and it's doable, but it's not going to happen by just luck. It's going to happen by deliberate thought. And I've spent a re- so long, so long. I, I'm embarrassed to admit it, how many years I have been contemplating this, and I'm going to share it. Love it. I'm sign me up. I'll be the first class, first graduate. I love it. That's awesome, man. Thank you for spending time with us. I'll see you uh, out in caravan or in, in some properties, I'm sure, soon. And fucking caravan. If you don't know the inventory, what the fuck are you doing? You need yeah. to know. You need to know the market. That's true. Thanks, Danny. Good to see you. That was awesome. I am what I am today because I did it.